Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for coming out on this very lovely, summery day. I'm not saying what day it is, because I don't quite know what day it is, but um, I just got off the plane from England. Um, anyhow, very nice to be here with you all. And um, I had the good fortune of not just flying in today, but spending the afternoon in Central Park, leading some nature meditation practice in the rambles, which was quite delightful with the sirens and the <laughs> boom boxes and the whatever else was going on. And I did just come from England teaching uh, mindfulness teacher training with Martin Elwood, who I know comes, was just here recently, I think. Um, so anyhow, it's been a while since I was here, so very happy to be back. And uh, nice to see a lot of familiar faces from retreats and elsewhere and some new faces. Um, so the plan is we'll sit together and then I will um, share some reflections about mindfulness and the book and maybe read a little and then open it up for questions and comments and, and then who knows, we'll see what else happens. So um, I'm just curious about who you are, especially the, those I don't know. Um, so um, I'm assuming, well I shouldn't assume, uh, who has a regular meditation practice? You know, at least, you know, once a year, you know, <laughs> New Year's Day, okay, all right. And just curious, how many people have been, uh, let's see, what do I want to ask? Who's been meditating for more than five years? Let's say more than 10 years, 15, 20, and beyond. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, well, let's sit together and just drop into the field of immediate experience. <coughs> Seems like you have a lot to say about mindfulness. <laughs> Hopefully. So I'm wondering how many of you went up to here? Not that there's anything wrong with going up to here, because that's where we reference, you know, and contextualize and articulate experience from. And I'm wondering how, how many of you actually stayed present to your physical sensory aliveness as we were attuning to in the sit. So we could spend the rest of the, the evening just hearing back from you, which I would like to do, but I'm going to not do that for now. Um, but just want to, you know, just to bring that forth, right? We hear a lot about mindfulness. You probably read a lot about mindfulness. You've done a lot of mindfulness practice. You may abhor that word, mindfulness. Uh, you may love it. 
You may have an ambivalent relationship to it. You may not really understand what it means. And here we are in the age of mindfulness. So what I'm going to do is talk a little about um, my own journey and um, how I came to write this, this particular book on mindfulness and then share a little teaching and exploration and then we'll open up for some discussion and um, so so I started practicing I first got introduced to mindfulness back in 1984 um, I was a uh, punk rocker in London, which was really fun times. My sister just sent me a picture of me in 1985, and I had this white, massive, sort of mohawkish hair, and uh, was kind of a wild child. I used to make my own clothes. I was part of the squatting movement, which was taking over abandoned houses for the homeless, mostly, including myself. And um, I was a pretty angry, uh, wild, creative, confused uh, young man. And um, it was a really fun time to be uh, a punk and to be a student. And um, But I was really unhappy, as many of us are when we start looking for something to, to, to understand our own anguish and, and distress. I was very self-critical, I was very hard on myself, uh, and definitely had some sort of anxiety, depression. Um, and I thought the problem was uh, everybody else. Institutions, governments, capitalism, corporations, my family, anybody who was close enough in firing range. You know, we, when we're unhappy, we tend to look to blame somebody. And I ended up squatting a Buddhist housing association house, um, which was good, for, good karma on my part, bad karma on theirs. Um, so, and, and back then, you squatted a house, and you had squatters' rights. You, you could stay for quite a while. And being Buddhists, they were very kind and nice, and they said, you know, maybe you should go meditate. <laughs> you should go look at your mind. And uh, anyhow, so I, I ended up going to this, uh, one of the only Buddhist centers in the country at the time. Uh, and as, as often happens when you first learn to meditate, it's kind of revolutionary. You get to turn this amazing jewel of awareness back to look at your own mind, which most of us, I certainly hadn't re ever really done. I was very busy looking outside of myself for something, answers, happiness, peace. Um, and and I'm still very, th the ripples of that, that sort of waking up uh, of seeing the power of how we can turn awareness 
to understand our own mind and our own self-created anguish and stress. And so I was immediately hooked and uh, ended up shaving the mohawk off and moving into a Buddhist uh, center in the country, much to the horror of my family. They preferred me as a punk Buddhist, punk rocker than a, as my sister said, boring Buddhist. Um, and, uh, but you know, the practice was very, very captivating and, um, and I just wanted to dive more deeply into it and really understand and just come out of the affliction of my own self-hatred and delusion and struggle. And uh, that began a lifelong search uh, or exploration, really, better word. Took me to India, took me to Asia, took me to California and um, to IMS up the road for many, many many, many months of long retreat and um, I'm sure incredibly blessed, as I'm sure many of you do, for the gift of these, these ancient wisdom teachings, these beautiful heart practices, and the gift of finding that inner light. As the Buddha said, be a lamp unto yourself understand what's true or what you can at least fathom of what's true it's all relative and it's all changing and at some point um, my teachers asked me to start teaching I thought that was a terrible idea um, and, but eventually did start teaching in India. Um, my first teacher training, I was just with my, my first Vipassana teacher, Christopher Titmus, and his idea of teacher training was, go give the Dharma talk tonight. That was the training. <laughs> I mean, aside from sitting a lot and being on retreat with him. And, um, and then, Got a little more training with Jack Cornfield uh, in California and started teaching in the late 90s. Um, and even back then, mindfulness was not that well known. It was mostly to the, in, the, in the privy of Buddhist centers like this and retreats like IMS and Spirit Rock and my family still thought, still thought I was weird. Um, not as worried about me joining a cult, but still weird. And um, so I started teaching um, in mostly Dharma retreats around most of the States and Europe and India. And um, it wasn't, and then I also be was a th became a therapist. Um, and it wasn't long after I was teaching that I, I began to see that um, there were not many people really in, in the main in the culture that were going to um, step inside a Buddhist retreat center. 
as familiar as that was to me, for most people that was pretty unusual to you know take a week or 10 days and go into a retreat. And I began to be invited to share the practices in the non, non-Buddhist settings. First in companies and in, then in healthcare and NGOs and nonprofits and um, schools and all kinds of different places. And um, uh, so, so it, back then it felt like clandestine teaching Buddhism without the B words. And, um, and it was very playful and experimental. How do you teach these ancient wisdom teachings in a format that doesn't draw on the, the lineage of that shared understanding and yet still make them relevant, accessible, but also have some depth? And, um, and I ended up forming an institute called the Mindfulness Institute, which was a vehicle for, for sharing these wisdom teachings in, in what's now called secular settings. I don't like that phrase, but that's sort of shorthand for non-Buddhist settings, non-religious settings. And um, so, and, and, and did a fair amount of that work for the last 15 years in various organizations around the world as well as continuing to teach uh, in Dharma retreats and, um, and then the other f- branch of my work, which was doing a lot of my teaching outside in the wilderness through uh, Awaken the Wild, integrating uh, uh, mindfulness practices and Dharma practices into nature, which is what I was doing in Central Park, the wilderness of Central Park today. And um, so feel like I've been very, uh, very up close to this, this um, uh, movement of mindfulness and, and the explosion of it in, the, in mainstream culture. And um, I remember about, it was about 10 years ago, we had a teacher meeting at Spirit Rock and there was this great concern about this thing called the mindfulness movement that was taking America and the world by storm and what were we going to do as a as a, a Buddhist teacher body and the, the, the feeling being that we'd sort of given birth in a way the mindfulness teachings mostly came out of the insight meditation tradition given birth to this movement but now it was like a, a sort of adolescent child without supervision and what was our responsibility in relationship to it and um, I and some others, including Martin, uh, decided that the, the most influence, you know, it, it's, it's, it's the Wild West and we, there's not that much ability to have that much influence over it because it's so huge and global. Um, but I thought that the best way to influence was to, was to train the teachers and influence the teachers because you influence the teachers, then you influence the teaching. So started te- doing running mindfulness teacher trainings uh, as a as a small effort to at least bring some depth and uh, of, of dharma understanding to that m- more secular field. Anyhow, so that's a long way of saying um, uh, the, a long lead into why I wrote this book was having b- 
both taught in, in Dharma settings for 20 years and in the mindfulness field for the last 15, I felt like I've had a very up-close um, uh, view of, of that evolution. And as I'm sure you know, there's been a lot of concern and criticism uh, about uh, how mindfulness has grown and exploded, uh, particularly in, from, the, from, from certain Buddhist circles. And um, some of it valid, some of it inaccurate, from my point of view. And, um, but my concern, having seen um, the explosion, particularly in the last five years, and, and the plethora of books and online resources of, of uh, seeing, feeling that there's a certain uh, loss, of loss of depth, and loss of context of what, what mindfulness is embedded within a tradition that's embedded in a path of liberation, a path of freedom, a path of uh, understanding and suffering and its end. And so I wanted to write a book that spoke to the depth of the practice of mindfulness, but uh, oriented towards understanding of the the mainstreaming of mindfulness and and reaching a more mainstream audience so i ended up writing this book called from suffering to peace um trying to bridge these t seemingly two worlds and um you know mostly coming out of my concern that the the the, the scope and the range and the depth and the profundity of what mindfulness teachings can p reveal is being lost. Um, so, and at the same time, I also have tremendous appreciation for the fact that now millions and millions of people, especially children, are being trained in mindfulness. And that, from my perspective, can only be a good thing. Um, so, you know, and there's also some concerns about, you know, where mindfulness is being taught, like to the Marines or to snipers or to Wall Street traders. There was an article called How to Make a Killing on Wall Street with Mindfulness. <laughs> I couldn't tell whether that was written by The Onion or whether it was true. I think it was actually a, a, an article, a true article, anyhow. And maybe there's some Wall Street traders in here like, oh, I want to learn that. <laughs> you know, I was in a shop recently in Canada and I was looking for some tea and there was a, some peppermint tea and it said, peppermint tea, mindful tea. And I thought, what the hell's peppermint tea got to do with mindfulness? <laughs> Nothing. You can drink it mindfully, <laughs> but peppermint is not inherently mindful, <laughs> unless everything is inherently mindful, which it's not. <laughs> so... So it's interesting just coming from the UK 
and um, the, the government over there being equally in turmoil as this one, yeah, actually more turmoil. And um, uh, the UK government released a, a white paper some years ago, did an extensive uh, study on mindfulness and its efficacy in society and decided to roll out and fund extensively mindfulness in healthcare, in education, in uh, the civil service and in the justice system because of all the various um, tremendously positive benefits that can be seen. Uh, and I think at that time, 110 uh, members of parliament, which is about a fifth of parliament, had gone through an eight-week mindfulness MBSR training. Obviously didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> Or maybe it could be a lot worse, I don't know. But I was just thinking, what would it be like if, if we had a fifth of Congress having gone through an eight-week mindfulness course? Right? We have Tim Ryan, who's valiantly trying to spread mindfulness teachings in Congress, not having great success. Congressman from Ohio. So why did the Buddha teach mindfulness? Why did the Buddha teach mindfulness? Right? If we understand this practice in the context of his teaching, what was the Buddha trying to do? He wasn't just trying to help people focus. He wasn't just trying to help people pay attention. He wasn't just trying to help people drink their peppermint tea mindfully. He was interested and concerned with helping people wake up. Wake up to the human condition. To understand all the ways that they are suffering. And to see how they are intimately involved in the creation and uh, exacerbating of that anguish. To understand how the mind works, how the heart works, to see how we can free ourselves from the mental, emotional, psychological pain that we so often unnecessarily create. So a very different kind of intention. said he taught one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. He was bad at math because that's two things. But anyhow. Um, and so how do we do that? We do that through be paying attention, through bringing this quality of awareness, of presence, to intimately understand our own mind, our own heart to see where we get caught in reactivity. See how we are unable to, uh, or see how we're so in contention with experience, in contention with ourselves, in contention with each other, in contention with the world. Like right now, or in this meditation or this evening, what are you in contention with? Maybe you're in contention with the fact that it's hot 
and sticky in, in here, or maybe that's just me, I don't know. Or maybe you're in contention with your, your achy, tired body, or your weary mind, or the traffic tonight, courtesy of the UN and whatever else is going on out there. How are you creating suffering right now? in the way that you're relating to experience. I had an interesting moment on the plane, so I was flying from London this morning and uh, extremely uh, underslept, so I was pretty tired and uh, I'd purposely not uh, drank any caffeine so I, in the hope that I could sleep on the plane and um, you know, sitting on the plane at some point, and I re and I was thinking, well, I should do some reflection about this talk tonight. So I got my went in my bag, got up my looking for my computer, and my computer wasn't in there. And I thought, oh shit! <laughs> I left it in the lounge at Heathrow Airport, and. Um, I didn't care so much about the computer, but you know, I was comparing about the talk tonight. I was comparing about con con caring about all my passwords and all my, or, you know, a lot of data on the computer. And I talked to the steward, and he said, "Oh, you know, well, if you left it in the lounge, we can call the lounge. I'll have the pilot call the lounge." I said, "Great, have him call the lounge. I'm sure he's got better things to do than call the lounge." But if actually, I've got a friend who's a pilot who I'm going to be flying with tomorrow. And Mostly they don't have anything to do because the computer's flying, so they just read books. But anyhow, <laughs> if only we knew. Anyhow, so uh, it turns out it's not there. It's like, okay, well, oh well. And feeling some stress about all of that. And um, try to go back to sleep, couldn't sleep. And then I, I, my pillow had fallen underneath this chair and um, had one of those reclining chairs. And I thought, oh, the pillow's fallen down. Maybe, maybe, maybe my computer fell down there. I couldn't imagine leaving it in the lounge. And lo and behold, my computer was behind the chair. <laughs> Mr. Mindfulness wins the day again. <laughs> A little humbled walking past the pilot who'd called <laughs> the airport. And just noticing what you know, what, what my mind did with that, right? With with that, the, with the, that raw data of experience. You know, was I beating myself up? Was I panicking? Was I whatever? So you know, life gives us these opportunities to practice always. So. One of the reasons I, I also wanted to write the book is because partly coming out of the research, you know, and it's barely a week goes by that we don't hear something about, oh, mindfulness is good for, I don't know, not losing so much gray matter in the brain, whatever that does, um, or it's good for weight loss, or it's good for sleep, or it's good for waking up, or it's good for this, and it's good for that. And, and this is a lot of hype if you might have noticed, and a lot of selling or overselling. And 
often presenting mindfulness as a panacea to everything, to the human condition. And mindfulness is in some ways anything but a panacea. The panacea meaning that we will get rid of things. You know, mindfulness is actually a radical confrontation with life, with experience, with ourselves. We, we, we look at ourselves fully in meditation. We confront our humanness. And if anything, mindfulness is incredibly humbling because we see ourselves naked. We see ourselves foibles and all, warts and all, as we say in England. And we meet the, the, the inherent unsatisfactoriness of life, as the Buddha spoke to. Far from curing our problems, that actually we look at them straight in the face. And we stop hiding, which is not so comfortable, which is why we'd rather watch a good Netflix, you know, session, binge session. Not easy to sit in the midst of our existential angst. So there's a piece I wanted to read from a, a student um, who I thought cap encapsulated this quite well. She said, like many others, I've had very challenging moments in my life with difficult divorce, being a single mom, and also having a strong idealistic tendency to think to think I could somehow find a perfect state of happiness. Over the years, I tried a variety of spiritual practices, but nothing really seemed to help me cope with my patterns of reactivity, which still played out and brought me deep frustration and unhappiness. When I discovered mindfulness practice, it seemed as though I'd finally found something that did not set me up to search for some ideal state. Instead, it showed me a depth of awareness in which I could be kind, happy, and at ease in my ordinary life under any circumstance. Therein lies the peace and happiness I'd longed for all my life. The pain of the divorce didn't magically disappear, neither did the challenges of being a single parent. However, mindfulness did give me the capacity to be present, accepting, and patient with whatever life threw at me. And this has been an invaluable gift. So meeting reality as it is. Life being like this, however life is. Anybody wanting mindfulness to be a panacea? Yes, of course we do. <laughs> we sit in meditation and we want we want our thoughts to dissolve, our body pain to go away, our life angst to disappear, right? We want to find that peace. And we think if all that stuff goes away, then I'll find peace. Only my body stopped hurting, if only my mind stopped nagging and tugging and reacting, if only the sirens would stop and my partner would shape up and etc. etc. 
or we go looking for peace in all the wrong places. There's a cartoon, there's a person meditating and the thought bubble pops up uh, saying, um, is, that, is, that, is that peace of mind? Oh, come on, oh, come on, come on already. Is that it, is that it? There's a lot of talk about, you know, yes, I'm just going to be with what is, and it's all good. But no, we want peace of mind now. (laughs) And we, you know, we clutch after it, because we're human, because why not? And and, and why these teachings are, are subtle and radical in that they're orienting us to understand that peace doesn't come through external conditions in that way. There can be plenty of peaceful conditions that are pleasant, like sitting in Central Park today in the autumnal light was very peaceful and beautiful. And someone was talking about how difficult it was to find peace because of the the people talking and the people and the sirens and the traffic noise and and if, you, if, if peace is predicated on all those things not happening, good luck. Wrong city. <laughs> Wrong place. Right? But you can move to the country and get away from the sirens and people and talking, and then what? And then there's black flies and bugs, and maybe it's cold and uncomfortable or something. Right? There's always something. As Joseph Goldstein likes to say, if it's not one thing, it's another. Or it's two things. So this this radical invitation from the practice of knowing that peace is available not based on the external conditions but in the wise relationship to what's here. Sitting on the plane with the angst about losing my computer with all my notes and all my stuff that hasn't been backed up for, I think it was 37 days, it said, because I've been on the road a a while. You know, like, oh, there's there's possibility to to be okay. There's an okayness, even though it's kind of annoying and a drag that that's happening. What to do? It's either there or not. It's lost or it's not. I'll get it or I won't. Not to say I'm not frustrated by my, um, uh, you know, lapses in mindfulness, Mr. Mindfulness. But can there be an ease underneath all that? I got a call from, I got an email from my assistant who helps try to manage my rather crazy calendar. And she is just on, this was yesterday. What's day's the day? Wednesday today? It's Tuesday yesterday. She said, I'm noticing you've got a flight from San Francisco to Albuquerque on Friday for your retreat at New, in New Mexico, but your retreat starts on Thursday. So unless you'd plan to arrive late for some reason, <laughs> I think you should change your flight. 
Mm, Mr. Mindfulness wins the day again, apparently. Dukkha is like this. <laughs> Unsatisfactoriness is like this. And you change the flight and it all, it all, it all seems to resolve itself. So how do we relate? How do we relate to this moment? How do we relate to our challenging life? Anybody just cruising through life? Just everything's going hunky-dory, no stress, no time scarcity, no body challenges, no perfect relationships. Anybody in that, in that slipstream? No. That's, life is not like that. It's, I mean, the times where it's easeful and relationships are fluid and beautiful and, and then there's life. You know. And there's the external circumstances and then there's our inner circumstances, our inner landscape, our inner drivers, delusions, compulsions, reactions, dramas. How do we meet the inner landscape? You know, we all have our conditioning that doesn't necessarily create such enlightened functioning, let's say. Right? Maybe you're, the imprinting from your family conditioning is, is one of anxiety or one of self-judgment or one of deficiency or something. For me, it was a lot of self-criticism. And some anxiety. And so again, how do we meet those inner... those inner landscapes, sometimes inner torments, This is uh, another story from actually the same person that told me my schedule was not quite as it should be. She has a young, very sweet little boy. And um, this is from a chapter about letting go. So um, and she's, she's been studying through, through, through her son just the, the powerful force of the wanting mind and how hard it is to let go. So her son's called Kiko, he's three, it's very adorable. Kiko's morning med meltdown today was because he made up his mind that he wanted syrupy waffles. My saying no and offering oatmeal with honey with a few rainbow sprinkles led to a good 15 minute wail. He was so st stuck on the idea of syrup that he couldn't relax enough to hear me explain that he could have a waffle after he ate his oatmeal. He'd calm down for a few seconds and look at the oatmeal just enough to tell me how it was too bumpy or not bumpy enough. Whatever bumpy is. <laughs> but it's a great description. <laughs> Eventually he found a book he wanted me to read him at the table and calm down enough to actually enjoy the sprinkles on his oats. 
while his three-year-old tendency to freak out over whatever it is he wants in that moment can be challenging, thankfully it's matched by his ability to just let go as soon as something else shiny catches his attention. Sound familiar? <laughs> right? We wail because something isn't bumpy enough or syrupy enough. And then we get upset and feels like the most important drama in the world. And then, ooh, puppies. Ooh, bunnies or Netflix or ooh, something. So this is why we train, right? We train to study the mind, study the heart. Because without that, what happens? We're lost. I was lost when I, before I started practicing. I was lost while I was practicing and still get lost, but a lot less than I did. A lot more access to some deeper resources. So reflection for yourself around where, where does mindfulness reveal where you suffer and where you can unhook from that. And where do you get caught? So there's a practice I sometimes teach of um, particularly interesting to do after meditation where, especially if you've established some presence in the meditation, which isn't always the case, but sometimes, and then as you end the meditation and get up to <clears throat> get on with whatever your day is, to see the moment you get caught in some kind of fixation, reactivity, grasping, clenching, contention with oneself or experience or someone else. And just seeing how quickly and easily we get caught, clenched, tight, reactive, resistant, aversive, and equally how easily it is to release, to soften, to let go. Maybe not always so easy, but possible. Mindfulness revealing this capacity to do this and to do this. Right? Our life, our day is this movement of holding and releasing clenching and releasing tightening and letting go. Without awareness, we're just mostly bound. Right? When we see the suffering of the bound, then we can release a little. So I want to just share a couple of more things uh, and then open up for questions. And I'll share a couple of other pieces from the book. One is... Um, so, that, so I sort of was mirroring the Buddhist... Uh, uh, teaching on the four foundations where he points to cultivating awareness in the body, feeling tone in the mind and heart, and in uh, the nature of experience. And so I explored the bringing awareness to body, mind, heart, and, and the world. 
and particularly wanted to emphasize the awareness of body as the this ground and foundation and a beautiful doorway for 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 bringing alive the practice and i want to sh share this story um for, again from another student um and how and she's speaking to how she meets uh a very difficult situation with her husband. So her husband's being uh, had gone through various um, medical situations. Um, he'd had cancer, had the tumor removed, but then also uh, developed um, a um, brain uh, condition. Maybe I'll just read it because my memory is not actually as good as I thought it was. In fact, it's never as good as I thought it was. Um, so Anne's husband, Tom, was diagnosed with a lung cancer and a massive brain tumor. Tom had surgery to remove the tumor and underwent intense chemotherapy. Though he's miraculously spared from death, he still has cancer and requires routine tests to monitor its growth and shared with me her anxiety she feels before getting his test results. The sinking feeling, this is where the, her, I, I thought her embodied awareness really uh, came to life. The sinking feeling in the pit of her stomach heart racing, gulping in breath, dizziness, and thinking that I might be losing my mind. However, rather than run from these sensations, Anne's been practicing embodied awareness, which has helped her cope. As she wrote, these feelings still come, but I'm not afraid of them anymore. Here's how she describes the experience of traveling with Tom to get his results. We're on the bus and Tom interlaces his beautiful, strong hands in mine. I sense the warmth in his fingers, I notice all the places where our bodies are touching as we sit side by side. We are hip to hip on this journey and always heart to heart. I close my eyes. I breathe deeply into this feeling of connectedness and then that becomes the emotion, love. The anxiety has subsided and, has been, and it's been replaced with love. How did that happen? It happened because I leaned into this discomfort. I allowed myself to physically feel it not the story, the catastrophizing, and the what-ifs, only the feeling. That's the thing with emotions. They must be felt in your body. If you avoid, numb, or block them, they don't go away. That clenched stomach, the sweaty armpits, the racing heart, I've learned to embrace and soften into them, stay with them, not rush to move on. When negative thoughts try and break in, I gently come back to the body and breath, to the feeling itself, not the story. Then there's a shift. There's always a shift. That's how this mindfulness thing works. So what I like about that story is the, the problem isn't going away. The cancer's not going away. The fear's not going away. The, the challenging situation's not going away. But the way she meets it, the way she leans into it, the way she melts into it physically, emotionally, relationally. It's a beautiful, I think, embodiment of what this practice uh, can allow. So uh, later in the book, I talk about um, working with the heart, working with the terrain, the landscape of the heart, in particular, the importance of integrating kindness, integrating love into our practice. I know for many years in my practice, um, I was on this sort of enlightenment or bus track. I was going to get enlightened, 
I'm going to kind of like transcend all this horrible, messy human stuff. And then I'm just going to cruise. And then who knows what. And, you know, what I now know is called, it's a bypass. I was trying to transcend basically the trauma and pain that I was carrying in my heart that I didn't want to feel, that I didn't want to acknowledge, that I didn't want to sit with. And, um, of course, when you stuff that long enough, it will eventually come out, as it did on a long retreat. And it was a very, very traumatic uh, episode in my practice. But it was tremendously humbling and really taught me a lot about how to work with uh, uh, both trauma from a place of, of, of kindness and care. So, um, I didn't share this piece, but um, there, I, I just went, I was just back in England for my dad's 80th birthday, um, and I blame my dad for getting me into meditation. Because um, actually, when I was 16, he dragged me to a, a transcendental meditation class. He was going through a lot of stress, and the doctor said, if you don't do something like meditate or yoga, you're going you're gonna to have a heart attack and die. And that got his attention. And uh, again, there was not much meditation happening where we were living, and, but there was a transcendental meditation class. So we all went there as a family, and I got a little taste of, of what that was about. Different than mindfulness practice, but, but valuable nonetheless. Anyhow, um, about six, well, I don't know how many years later, 40 years later, 30 years later, um, I'm in, I'm in England and um, I'm back for Christmas and uh, we had some little family drama go on and my dad went off to the pub, as you do, for therapy. Um, and uh, I went, followed him out and um, was sitting at the bar and um, he's been sharing with me over the years, of, uh, recent years, about uh, regrets in his life. He had a very, very traumatic childhood and um, very painful conditioning. And um, Well, I'll read the story because it, it goes into a little more detail. Um, I don't know. Share a little more about that. On a recent trip to England for the Christmas holidays, I had an unusually frank talk with my dad. We were in a lively English pub full of holiday cheer, and after chatting about various things, he began sharing how much pain he still carried inside. My father had a wretched childhood. He was born out of wedlock in 1939, unable to be raised by his mother. He was forced. He was fostered by a multitude of families until he was seven. He said he would live with so many foster parents that he forget the name he forgot the names of his caregivers he could, he forgot the names of his caregivers there were so many all this happened during the six world six years of world war ii when england was focused on surviving the war against germany and there was little attention or time to spare for a little foster child as children do my father internalized his miserable predicament by assuming something must be fundamentally wrong with him he developed scars of unworthiness and shame this left him hungry for love that he hoped would mitigate the whole of deficiency that lived in his heart. Being so young, he had not learned the skills and coping mechanisms needed to deal with such pain. The tragic wounds from those early years remained with him all his life. He found many ways to hide it, to ignore it, 
to drink it away, but like a shadow it was close to hand. Now in his later years, the pain was nagging even more in his heart. He felt a desire for resolution and healing and felt remorse for ways he had acted out from the pain, yet he was unsure how to resolve the painful emptiness inside. During our conversation in the pub, my father took the risk to reveal this vulnerable, hurting place to me. It was a beautiful moment of intimacy. And I had tears in my eyes as he talked of the pain he'd held in for so long. I reflected to him from my own struggles that the only way forward is through the pain. I reminded him that he had to turn towards that scared, lonely, rejected boy inside and give him the same love that he was already able to give clearly able to give his family, children, and friends. To heal, I suggested he hold his wounded heart with compassion, feel the tender pain, and meet it with kindness and forgiveness. Anyhow, the, in the process of that, as he was sharing his pain, I said, you know, Dad, you know, I'm in this business of you know, pain. I'm in the pain business. And you know, over the centuries, there's some practices that you, know, you can do that might be helpful. And, and you know, I suggested this, the, the, the practice of mindful self-compassion that developed by Kristen Neff. And um, I said, you know, there's trainings and courses. And, and it might, he lives in, in, uh, in the country in a tiny village in the middle of nowhere. And, but he does do yoga in the next tiniest hamlet uh, across the woods from where he lives. And it just turns out that that teacher was trained in mindful self-compassion and was teaching a course the week he got home after that being in the pub and this is he was 79 and uh, he jumped in he jumped for it and he, he did this course and it was a profoundly healing for him particularly not feeling alone particularly understanding that he wasn't the only one who was carrying around traumas and wounding and learn, and he actually called me, I was in Mexico teaching, and he called me in Mexico. I said, Dad, why are you calling me in Mexico? It's expensive. What's, what's going on? There must be, and I just assumed there was some, something urgent, some drama. And he said, oh, I've just finished the course. It was amazing. It was life transforming. I know I've just started. I know it's a path. I know it takes a while, but it's really been tremendously helpful. And I went back in April. We started meditating together. And he went on a retreat. He's been on two retreats now. And um, it was just a beautiful full circle for me of you know, starting meditating with him back in 1981. And now 2019, meditating together and, and sharing these mindfulness practices and self-compassion practices. And, you know, never too late. And no matter how deep and old the wounds are, these practices profoundly transformative. Again, they don't get rid of the wound necessarily, but they allow us the capacity to meet it with kindness, with presence, with care. And again, it just reminded me of how these, these two qualities of awareness and love there's two sides of the same coin. They, they, in, in a mature practice, they need to be integrated, maturated, and woven into each other, which is what happens over time. So,
So just one last thing to say is, um, so the last section of the book is about mindfulness in the world, and I talk quite a bit about the ecological crisis, and particularly given what's happening here at the UN, um, and the re recent strike, and um, again, I think this is another um, fundamentally indispensable capacity that these practices give us is, is is how to hold the immense global suffering, whether it's ecological, social, or otherwise, how to feel the pain of the world, and also how not to um, collapse. And not easy, you know, especially for those of the lovers of this earth, which I am, to hold both the beauty and the love and the tremendous grief and sadness and loss, which is growing day by day. So, but these practices, uh, you know, tremendous tools for resilience and for allowing us to hold you know, an immensity of pain and hopefully give us the clarity and the, the discernment to know how to act, how to engage. So anyhow, I want to cease my talking and uh, open it up for questions. So I think we have a microphone here that Vivian has. Questions, comments, mindfulness? Hello. Oh, hi, Mark. Hello. Um, I'm a fellow Mark. And uh, we actually met at your retreat at Spirit Rock in April, I believe it was. Uh -huh. um, <coughs> but I have a question that's been nagging at me since then, which is uh, in my own practice, I've realized that the meditation has really helped me deal with negative emotions. Um, and like cultivate some distance between me and those emotions. Um, on the other side though, it's also created some distance between me and positive emotions. Um, and it seems like that kind of like meta-awareness that meditation cultivates has kind of swung both ways. Um, so I was wondering, is that normal or am I doing something wrong um, but it is somewhat common now to be like in a positive experience and then kind of drop back um, and like witness myself having that experience so in the same way that it helps with the negative emotions it kind of seems to hurt sometimes with positive ones yeah and when you say drop back what does that mean are you somehow detaching in a certain way or? Yeah, it almost feels like dissociative. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Where it's like, I am witnessing someone being happy, but I, right. there's like some distance there. Yeah, yeah. So you want to go in the opposite direction. So uh, what I mean by that is, um, it sounds like there's a sort of withdrawal from experience, whether it's negative or positive. 
right? And that, you know, it's certainly not, not difficult to hear that in the way that the teachings are presented to sort of you know, rest in a sort of spacious, you know, observing awareness. But the point is actually to have an intimacy and an immediate connection with experience, not to detach. Because as, you, as, you're, as you're seeing, that detachment will lead to a certain dissociation, which is not the point. The point is to actually be very engaged, connected, intimate with experience, both the painful and the, and the, the beautiful. Um, the paradox is in that intimacy that what also grows is a spacious awareness to hold the experience and not be so uh, consumed or lost in it. So in the beginning, it seems like, oh, I have to do this to not be so lost in it. And, you know, and, and that can be a, a movement. But as you're seeing, there's a significant negative side effect, which is we start to feel detached, disconnected, disassociated. The, the, the range of positive emotions and experience starts to feel flatlined, right? Which is an indication that we're, we're, we're detaching, which leads to a certain kind of bypassing. So um, I would invite you to actually as it were, lean into or become a little more connected to, the, to, to whatever's present emotionally, feeling, sensing, and, and trusting that in the knowing of that, that that provides enough spaciousness that you don't need to back away. Okay. Thank you. Please at the front here. Oh. Mark. Hi. Um, first off, thanks for sharing that story with your dad. Mm. Um, I have an 86-year-old dad. Um, and, uh, that was nice. Um, I'm curious. Uh, you mentioned how you were a, you're a punk rocker, um, got into some mindfulness. I'm kind of curious. What was the moment where you kind of said, "Wow, I want to run silent retreats outdoors in nature." I mean, you didn't talk about loving nature. Mm. And then, um, so kind of like your big why there. And then also, how does being in nature, how does it bring out your light and also maybe what you've seen with other people? Because mm. it's, I mean, it's, clearly it's a powerful mm. uh, medium, nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the nature thing happened when I came to the States, to be honest. So I came to the States in 1993 and had a lot of space at the time. And I bought a camper van in Florida, drove across country, spent a lot of time in the, in the woods and the mountains and the wilderness. And um, was also in an intensive retreat period for years. I was mostly doing retreats, but I began to take them more and more outside just because I wanted to be outside was enjoying meditating outside, doing my own retreats outside seemed to make a lot of sense. And, um, and I just began to see how profound it was to be outdoors and how all the, the wisdom Dharma teachings that I'd been studying for years just became very self-evident. 
um, and and it seemed to be so much easier <laughs> to practice and access deeper wisdom because nature's just you know flowing with natural wisdom that it I, I began to question why we why we make it hard by sitting in these boxes thinking somehow this is better than sitting under the trees like the buddha did for, and, and the tradition has for centuries or did and um so it was really coming from that i wanted i, I, I wanted to share my own love and passion that, and 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 uh, discovery that was happening very fruitfully and, and somewhat effortlessly outside i wanted to share that with people and um, and that began uh, in the early 2000s and uh, became very obvious that that was also not just my experience it was very true for for most people um, and what I particularly like about that form is it's uh, it's unpredictable it's uncertain there's lots of challenges every moment in every day changes because landscape weather elements bugs, creatures, it's always shape-shifting. So, so in that way, it resembles life a bit more than sitting in a, in a cloistered mon in a monastery or a temple where you know, life's not like that. Life is not so quiet and peaceful. It's full of changing circumstances. So that's where that came from. And, um, and then there's also just so much tremendous joy and and I wanted to also um, help people find a way to bring the contemplative presence that we can feel in meditation to the outdoors and to see how much you know we go outside, but we you know I mean I was just walking around Central Park and I was counting how many people were on their phones versus just sitting. You know it's about half and half, say fifty percent, and. You know, it's like oh, we've lost the art of simply sitting, looking, listening, sensing, feeling, and so one. You know, and, and knowing that the the jewel of the of awareness practices, you you bring that in nature, and it's, it's a profound uh, alchemy happens. So yeah, that's where that arose from. Please in the back. You started out with the why the Buddha taught, and it's to understand suffering, or some about suffering, or suffering self, and its end. Suffering and its and its and the end of suffering. And the end of suffering, and how much so? For example, my own suffering is something that is self that I do to myself. But in letting go, or understanding, or changing the relationship with my own suffering. I have found joy. Well, I find more joy, which mm. is something I don't hear people. I don't hear people that are Buddhist talk about so much. Those the Buddhists. Part. So I just was wondering if you, those Buddhists, I know, like they're so miserable. No, I was just wondering if you could just say something about joy. Yes, thank you. Great question. Yeah, love talking about joy. This is a joyful path, right? Even though Buddhists drone on about suffering and the end of suffering. The end of suffering. What's the end of suffering? Joy, happiness, delight, spaciousness, freedom, ease, peace, well-being, love, kindness, connectivity. Right? These, 
These are all qualities that start to emerge as we uh, free up our neurosis, our you know, afflictive mental habits and, and torments, our self-obsession and rumination. Um, you know, for example, being in the park today, right? When one has awareness, presence, right? It's 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 a wonderland. It's a feast for joy and delight, and ecstasy and wonder and awe. As it was for me today, I was I was in bliss. You know, for the for the two or three hours that we were there, it was just pure. It was magnificent, right? And that that's one of the jewels that comes from this practice is there's so much goodness and beauty and joy in life if one is present not stuck in here not ruminating and dwelling in the past and the future and reacting and doing all the things that we do but are actually relatively present right there's just there's so much to delight in and i for me the a lot of the practice <coughs> over these over these decades has been a practice of joy like even when I first started in East London, back then in East London was very run down, depressed, dirty, grimy, um, a lot of poverty, uh, and and my mind was also very negatively fixated. And I heard this teaching from the Buddha that that goes, um, uh, whatever the mind frequently dwells and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of the heart. Right? Whatever we pay attention to, that's what we, to some degree, dwell in and become. And I saw how negatively fixated I was, and I, I very purposely shifted to say, okay, yes, I'm living in a run-down, grotty part of London. What else is here? Oh, the London Plains trees that survived the bombing in the Second World War are here. The sky is relatively bright, and there's beauty in the faces of children and is not ignoring the stuff that was you know ugly but also attuning to what what was uplifting for the heart and so um so yeah so the practice you know is we're unpeeling layers of angst and uh distress and reactivity and mental preoccupation that allows in the same way that allows the heart to start to, to start to have more access to kindness and care and warmth and friendliness in the same way that we also experience more joy and delight you know whether it's just simply being you know when i was teaching in england i was walking through i was teaching in the country and it's apple season and um the, there was all these beautiful apples that were just on the ground and I started just collecting and eating these beautiful apples and like and just it was like a magnificent experience right? eating an apple freshly fallen from the tree so yes a lot of joy to be had um, yeah thank you yeah. you know the, the Buddha was known as the happy one right and you know most people I know who practiced a long time. There's a lot of inner, you know, joy or ease. Right? Doesn't mean we're always happy. Right? But there's a certain kind of wellspring of well-being. 
And, um, you know, and there's also life and there's stress and there's sadness and there's grief and there's all of that. But um, what I've noticed, and, and interesting to the question earlier about emotions and flatlining, that just much greater range of experience, joys and sorrows, but much freer movement of that. Please question the front here. Um, check. Uh, I had a practice question. When um, I'm focused on a object while practicing, I have the thought like, how do I know if I've been sufficiently with the rising and falling of it before moving to a different object in either the same or a different sense door. So I was wondering if there's a Buddhist rule of thumb. Depends which Buddhist you ask. <laughs> There's lots of rules of thumbs in response to that question, depending on the practice, depending on the intention of the practice, um, depending on your proficiency with the practice, depending on your interest of attending to particular objects. So, um, yeah, and like if you're doing a concentration practice, then you want to be very attuned and sustain that attention to that object continuously over time. Um, so if you're doing a more choiceless awareness practice where you're just present to the momentary coming and going of phenomena, then it doesn't matter what phenomena you're present to, so you don't have to hold onto it, you're just present for the arisings of whatever form of phenomena is coming. Um, so Ultimately, I would say it doesn't matter, but in the minutia of cultivating a particular style of practice, it does matter to some degree. So, so not knowing enough about your practice, I would say study both ways of doing that. Stay with a particular object for as long as it is present. What's one way to go? or you're simply present to whatever's arising and not worrying about staying with something for that long. Right? They, they both f cultivate different, slightly different qualities in the mind. Ultimately, from the perspective of awareness, doesn't matter which one you do. <clears throat> Thank you. That may help or further confuse you, but a couple of hands over there. Uh, it's, it's a longer, Detailed question, but yeah, uh, well, let's 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 let's, let's move on. Yeah, yeah, thanks. You can we can talk after. So, there's a lady in the front. Oh, yeah, actually, yeah, she was first and then and then in the front. Hi, hello, my name is Kayla. Hi, Kayla. Um, thank you so much. Keep, keep the talk. mic close. Oh, hi, there you go. Wow, that's loud. Thank you so much for your talk. Yeah, you're um, welcome. And sharing your practice. So, as my practice has deepened, I not only have become more open and raw to my own experience, 
but I've also developed this intricate connection to the experiences of the people around me and the natural world around me. And as that opening up has been a really beautiful thing, it's also been a very difficult journey. Um, in terms of just more and more cognitive dissonances that come up for me about you know, how I live my life and what I spend my time doing and how I, um, you know, the work that I want to do in this world. And so I'm wondering if, you know, as a meditation teacher and a nature lover, um, if you can just speak a little bit about that. That as you, as you develop more awareness, you start to feel more cognitive dissonance? Right. Um, developing a deeper connection to others and the world around you mm -hmm. um, and how really just how to work with that in a way that is not necessarily debilitating and overwhelming mm -hmm. but empowering and mm -hmm. inspiring mm -hmm. in terms of the work that you do and mm -hmm. what you offer to the world mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nice. Tough questions here. So are you, are you saying that, so as the awareness grows, there's obviously more awareness of others growing, and it sounds like that's, is that becoming hard to hold or hard to um, be with, that, that awareness or whatever's arising in the field in, in relationship? Yeah. I'm, I'm looking for like, what, what, what's the struggle point here? What's the, what's the rub, right? I, I, I get there's more awareness, more awareness of other. <clears throat> I would say it's how to be with joy and still find joy while I'm simultaneously becoming more and more open and connected to like the state of the world. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah. This, hence the cognitive dissonance. Um, well, both are true, you know. Um, so as, as we grow in the practice, we are able to hold more paradox. Uh, there's so much about this practice that's about paradox. Um, in that, you know, the world is being, the, the earth is being destroyed as we speak, right? The rainforests are burning. The uh, I don't need to list the catalog of despairing things and the autumn leaves are turning and they're beautiful right even though the trees are desperately dry because it's been dry here and it's beautiful and the squirrels are connect collecting acorns for the winter and it's beautiful and both are true People are beautiful and they do horrible things to each other. Both are true, right? And so it, 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 it just, it, it's, you know, it's why we'd rather watch Netflix. I keep using that. I mean, maybe don't like Netflix, but whatever, you know, it's that, it, that metaphor. It, it's actually, it, it actually is hard to open and hold both, to hold you know the the pre the preciousness of a of a child playing in in the park and then 
10 feet away, someone's desperately looking sick and homeless and uh, looks like they have a wretched existence, right? It, it, it challenges the heart. It's, it's one thing to open to suffering or open to joy, but to open to both requires a lot of capacity or space or resilience or I don't even know the word because it, it's, it's easier to numb it down, but to numbing it down means we, we also numb down our joy and our aliveness and our, our empathy um, and so it's, it's, um, yeah, I'm, I don't know how to describe it. It, it's, it's hanging out with the, with the hardness of that duality of that, of that, of that polarity of experience that it's, it's, it's all of it. And, and, and as we wake up, it's waking up to more and more of that, that huge paradox called life. You know, yeah. You know, I was on, I was teaching a loving kindness retreat, and this woman said, "How do we? You know, we talk about loving kindness to all beings. How can you do that when all you know half the beings have to eat the other half to live, right?" And she took a walk up the and I and and I gave my answer, and she took a walk walking up the snowy paths of IMS in winter and she looked up and there was a shower of feathers as the hawk was eating a, a chickadee and she wanted both the hawk to live and the chickadee to live knowing that one was going to eat the other to survive that's the paradox wanting both to be well and knowing that that life is also both life-giving and destructive at the same time Right? So we have to hold this uncomfortable, you know, kind of vast range of experience and this dissonant, and that's also true. Yeah, yeah thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I'm aware I, I want to get this last point here, and then I know we're coming close to time, and I am happy to stay behind and answer questions. Also happy to sign books for those of you who bought books. So this is not a question, it's simply a comment. First off, I want to thank you for showing up after that traumatic plane ride. <laughs> Wasn't that traumatic? Here you are, giving this Dharma talk. Um, I've heard you actually on Dharma Seed, so it's wonderful to uh, see you good, in good. person. But I also just wanted to add, apropos of your um, comments about um, the benefits of out, being outdoors and of nature. A couple of weeks ago on PBS News, there was a story about doctors who are now prescribing, yes. instead of drugs, mm -hmm. they are prescribing going outdoors, yep. being outdoors, everything yep. from, everyone rather, from children to the mm -hmm. elderly. Yep. So, um, yeah, I think it's really, really important. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yes. Yes, no, I mean, it, if we all went outside, if you all, like, if you, if you all took an hour walk in Central Park every day, right, that's medicine. Nature is medicine, profoundly healing. And it's sort of on our doorstep-ish, you know, Hudson River or whatever, you know, 
it's available if we but we have to make use of it we have to turn our attention we have to receive the blessing so all right everybody thank you for your time and practice lovely to be here i hope to come back again not too long Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.